Welcome to today's podcast. My name's Todd Fraser. Joining me on the podcast today is Dr. Ian Seppelt from Nepean Hospital in Sydney, Australia. Ian's well known in research circles in intensive care and joins me to discuss the perennial issue of fluid resuscitation in critically ill patients. Welcome, okay. Ian. Thank you very much. Ian, is it fair to say that we have a problem with fluid administration in our industry, do you think? Um, we, we certainly do have a problem with fluid administration. That's manifested by two separate things. Firstly, we really don't know what fluids to use. Um, the evidence is starting to come out to, to help inform that. But interestingly, the one strongest determinant of choice of fluid is geography more so than anything else. Secondly, we really don't know how much fluid to give. We don't have any good way of measuring how much fluid to give. Uh, though again, the data is emerging that we probably give too much and that excessive fluid administration is increasingly being linked to, to poor outcomes for patients. So both choice of which fluid and also how much fluid are difficult questions. Every clinician has an opinion, um, but a lot of those opinions aren't particularly based on anything except experience and teaching and, and location. Uh, and very, very slowly the evidence is accumulating to help in, inform some of that. You mentioned that we have, um, or that there's increasing evidence that fluid can be harmful. What are the sort of harms and what's the evidence now telling us about that? So there's firstly harm from composition. And, and one area that I think is going to be very interesting in the next five years or so is looking specifically at the problems with hyperchloremia where traditionally we've used high chloride fluids for, for resuscitation. Uh, sodium chloride is still the most commonly used resuscitation fluid worldwide or colloids all, all based on, on a sodium chloride carrier. There's a fair bit of data that, that high levels of chloride are harmful. Um, people talk about abnormal saline because 0.9% sodium chloride is, is not normal in any sense, physically or chemically or physiologically. Um, there was a lovely study published last year in JAMA from the Austin Hospital in Melbourne. It's a simple observational before and after study where for, for six months, the intensive care used its usual, mainly chloride-based resus fluids. And then after a washout period, uh, they deliberately got rid of all the, all the high chloride fluids and used only plasmolite R and a salt pour 20% albumin solution, got rid of everything else. And in the second six month period, they had a significantly lower incidence of kidney dysfunction and need for renal replacement. Single center, not powered for mortality and not randomized as a before and after study. So this is all just hypothesis generating. But I think that is where we're now going to be going looking at data that choice of fluid might affect kidney function and especially kidney failure. Choice of fluid might affect um, bowel function, bowel edema, um, certainly too much fluid causes abdominal compartment syndrome and other organ dysfunction. If you've had surgery, too much fluid causes wound breakdowns and anastomotic breakdown. Too much fluid causes acute lung injury. Um, really organ dysfunctions of all, of all kinds are related to fluid administration. And it seems pretty clear that uh, excessive fluid balance um, in, in ICU patients seems to be making a difference to their outcomes, doesn't it? I, I think that's definitely right. 
uh, again, coming back to clinical trials, there isn't a lot looking just at fluid balance, but there are subgroups in a couple of major trials that have done that. The best known is, is the FACT trial. That's the 2 by factorial ARDS study from the, the ARDS network in the US, which compared both a pulmonary artery catheter versus a CVP-guided resuscitation and also liberal versus very restricted fluids. And in the liberal versus restricted fluids arm in ARDS, again, while, while there was no mortality difference, the restricted fluid group had less morbidity, they had a shorter time on ventilator, and fewer complications. Despite, when you read the protocol, it was actually a very, very viciously restricted fluid regime with frizomide infusions and a, an absolutely negative fluid balance. A few, a few other studies, again, looking at subgroups, we're seeing similar things. Interestingly, the renal study, the, the Antics Clinical Trials Group study of higher versus lower flux in renal replacement therapy, in a post hoc analysis, patients who had a negative fluid balance while on CRT had better outcomes and fewer complications than those who had a, a neutral or positive balance while on CRT. So this sort of data is now emerging in, in subgroups and post hoc analyses in many trials. The next step is to, to actually do the comparative trial of restricted fluid versus more liberal fluid. The study design, I think, will be quite difficult in intensive care, though not impossible. But a first step is a study that, that is actually about to start in, in anesthesia and surgical critical care, deliberately restricting fluids for patients with major abdominal surgery at high risk of significant fluid flux, uh, comparing usual fluid therapy, which is, say, four litres of fluid in 24 hours, for a two or three hour abdominal operation to very, very restricted fluids, um, giving just formulas per kilo per hour improperly and basal fluid post-op uh, with a strong emphasis on, on early oral intake, early mobilization, stop the IVs. That's just been funded in the last round by the National Health and Medical Research Council and will be starting later this year. Uh, and, and that's looking at as an interesting endpoint for high-risk surgical patients where mortality is not an appropriate endpoint because overall mortality is too low to, to, to power a study. But um, this particular study is based around a 12-month disability-free survival as a composite endpoint, meaning that patients can't just be alive or dead, but they need to actually be alive and functional meaning not in a nursing home, not disabled, not dependent on others for care. And it's only those who are able to care for themselves who count as a positive outcome in the study. And I think that'll be very, very interesting when that concludes in a couple of years' time. Ian, you mentioned the FACT trial a moment ago, and I think my understanding of the trial is that they resuscitated people along essentially normal lines and then once they were stable aggressively or conventionally, removed fluid from the patient. Do you think that's a, a reasonable model to be using in other groups other than ARDS? But based on current evidence, yes, I think it is. Uh, I'm certainly not saying don't resuscitate patients. Having said that, we're very unsure of the endpoints of resuscitation and perhaps we can come back to that. But clearly there is a difference between the resuscitation phase and the maintenance phase. 
interestingly, this is something that paediatricians worked out 50 years ago. And I, I recall as a, a medical student in the 1980s being taught by paediatricians to think differently in a sick child between resuscitation fluid, um, rehydration fluid and maintenance fluid as three separate contents. And I think now, nearly 30 years later, if we think the same way about our sick adults, we may be doing better things for them than we currently do. Do you think the question has been answered in ARDS now? Uh, no, I don't. There's still a lot of provocative things in ARDS. I think it's certainly clear that, that minimal fluid is, is best in ARDS and, and giving more fluid than necessary merely leads to wet lungs longer times on ventilator and further complications. What we don't know is the choice of fluid in ARDS. One, one researcher who has looked at this is Greg Martin from, from Nashville who has done a couple of studies, phase two and phase three studies, looking at the use of albumin in ARDS and specifically the, the so-called latex albumin sandwich, giving a combination of concentrated albumin and furosemide. And looking at physiological endpoints, he's shown some, some improved outcomes there. Um, that's not enough to then go and change practice, but it's certainly a provocative finding that, that maybe there, there is something about specific choice of fluids in ARDS as opposed to other physiological syndromes. You mentioned um, the concept of knowing when to give more fluids and, and how do we know when enough fluid is enough. Is there a, a generally accepted way of uh, anticipating that somebody will have a beneficial response to fluids? No, there's no generally accepted way. and This is certainly one of those things where if you get four intensivists in one room, you can get a raging argument in five different ways of doing it. Uh, I, I don't know a particular way that's any better than any other. I certainly know of some things that aren't any good. Uh, I think we have to acknowledge in 2013 that the pulmonary artery catheter doesn't make much physiological sense at all when used to assess fluid. Please note I'm not completely condemning it. Uh, PA catheter is excellent for measuring cardiac output. PA catheter is excellent for measuring temperature, but they're really the only two things that it does. So it measures pulmonary pressure, of course. Um, but all the derived indices, pulmonary occlusion pressure, the so-called wedge pressure, has been shown very clearly in many, many studies in both humans and animals to have no relationship whatsoever to left ventricular function, yet people still persist, persist in resuscitating to that sort of endpoint, and that the CVP has even less relationship. Um, there's this pretense that somehow pressure is a way of, of measuring a volumetric endpoint um, that requires so many assumptions that, that it becomes meaningless. So I'm certainly comfortable to say that CVP or even delta CVP does not help. Pulling over occlusion pressure does not help. Um, and we need some other more physiological way of, of measuring what we're trying to do. Part of the difficulty is not knowing what we're trying to do in the first place, which is really to give as little fluid as necessary while not giving too little. Uh, I, I like referring that as, as sort of the Goldilocks syndrome in intensive care, and this really applies to a whole lot of the areas, where if you think of the story of Goldilocks and the three bears, um, Papa Bear's porridge was too hot, baby bears, sorry, Mama Bear's porridge was too cold, but baby bear bears was just right. And that's what we're trying to do with fluid. Don't, don't give too much, don't give too little, but just get it right. 
uh, great. That's easy to say. It's a bit harder to, to implement in practice. Uh, but even in the resuscitation phase, too much is bad, too little is bad. Try and walk that fine line. At, at the moment, I think we have to be thinking in terms of, of volumetric indices if we measure anything. Uh, so we are, we're trying to look at the, the filling of the, the, of the left ventricle and the starting curve and the starting performance of the left ventricle. That's all related to volume, not pressure. Uh, whether you then assess the ventricular in systolic area and the ventricular, uh, sorry, the ventricular in diastolic area and diastolic volume, and how you do that is open to argument. But that's either done with Doppler, such as an esophageal Doppler, or other ultrasound techniques. Um, non-invasive techniques like an ASCOM, echocardiography, or some of the, the invasive pulse pressure variation type of techniques that, that are all calibrated against volumetric in, indices, or indeed just good old clinical examination. Um, there's some, some lovely, very, very old studies showing a correlation between big toe temperature and outcome, for example, which really can't be dismissed. We also must remember that we're not interested in the question, if I give volume, does the pressure go up? Or if I give volume, does the cardiac output go up? Uh, both of those don't actually correlate to any clinically meaningful endpoint for the patient. Uh, in terms of getting the patient better, the question is, if I give volume, will this help the patient? Um, and, and that's not quite the same question. So while we might be able to show that the patient is volume responsive, we don't necessarily know that giving volume is a good thing. And that's really got to be a focus for research in the next decade. My approach to any one of these patients is certainly when a patient is shocked to, to give fluid, uh, I'm looking at, at the various indices of shock. So firstly, ask the question, why am I giving fluid in the first place? And is whatever reason I gave for giving fluid now getting better? And that's got to be number one, to a point where it's either not getting better and I abandon the attempt, or it is getting better and I'm happy that I'm doing the right thing. Uh, so organ dysfunction, lactate, kidney dysfunction might be all valid indices in a particular patient here and now. To some extent, urine output, but I think we have to be very, very careful about urine output, and I'll come back to that, where 10, 20 years ago we thought that having a, a urinary catheter was a poor man's cardiac output or a poor man's PA catheter. Uh, high urine output is not necessarily a good thing. Um, coming right back to, to physio physiology, the normal response to injury or stress is not inappropriate, but the appropriate secretion of antidiuretic hormone. It's, the appropriate part of our physiology, and it's normal to become oliguric in times of stress. It's normal to become oliguric after trauma or after major surgery, and to, to then pour in fluids just trying to get urine flowing is not a very physiological way of thinking and may not correlate to improved outcomes in the patients. The reason that we give fluids essentially is to promote oxygen and nutrient delivery to tissues. Do we have an appropriate way of monitoring tissue perfusion in this day and age? Not in general clinical use. There's plenty of 
experimental tools that have been around for quite some time, including things like near infrared spectroscopy, uh, which isn't that hard to use if you, if you have the equipment, but that's, that's not, not readily available. Um, microdialysis catheters, looking in particular tissue beds, again, can, can measure very directly how these tissue beds are responding. Uh, these, these are all great in a research context, but haven't been been rolled out and, and become generally applicable at the bedside. Currently, with what we have available, we're left with a, a, a clinical examination of the patient in front of us, and a good clinical examination really counts for as much, if not more, than anything else, uh, and then a repeated examination by, by the same person. So this is not something to, to delegate to, to the residents or nurses, but to actually examine the patient yourself, then do some resuscitation, examine the patient again, and it, it's immediately obvious what the changes are over that period of time. And that can only be done by an experienced clinician doing a clinical examination. That is then supplemented by, by various other things, depending a bit on what is available and what skills and training you have. So for myself and for my unit, that will generally be echocardiography at that point, still recognising the limitations of echo and not trying to indiscriminately apply that and just treat numbers. You're still treating the patient. But there are plenty of other validated ways that, that, that do the same thing to a lesser or greater extent, um, depending on individuals and skills and equipment available. So assuming that tissue perfusion is um, suboptimal uh, and then further assuming that increasing the cardiac output will improve tissue perfusion. There's a number of methods that you mentioned that can uh, indicate the potential for fluids to improve cardiac output. All seem to use some sort of dynamic assessment of whether or where the, um, where the patient is positioned on the Starling curve. Is that a reasonable thing to say? I think it is. Uh, the word dynamic, definitely. Static numbers really are, are meaningless uh, and are as likely as not to lead to exactly the wrong treatment as the right treatment. You, you cannot just treat a number. It's got to be a, a dynamic system that you're looking at and treating. Uh, we don't know for sure which way of looking dynamically is better than which other way of looking dynamically. But in terms of uh, the general statement, yes, I agree with you. Turning our attention for a moment to the type of fluid, you referred earlier to the, the issue of chloride. Is there a, an understanding of the mechanism by which chloride-containing fluids might cause harm? Yeah, there's not a clear understanding. There's a lot of theories um, relating partly to direct effects of, of, of the chloride in the kidneys, um, also partly related to the acid base effects of the, the narrow anion gap. Uh, sodium chloride has a strong ion difference of zero, for example, compared to a normal strong ion difference of closer to 40. Um, an exact mechanism hasn't yet been elucidated, but correlating with clinical evidence that hyperchloridemia is harmful, I think that is something that has to be researched in a lot of detail in the next decade or so. 
Now, the ANZIC CTG, of course, has made a, an incredible contribution to um, determining what fluids are appropriate in what settings with the release of the, the SAFE trial and, more recently, the CHESS trial. How close are we to understanding uh, what fluids are appropriate in what settings? Certainly taking steps forward. People joke about the CTGs being in the negative trials group, uh, which is certainly not the case and not appropriate. Of the last nine major trials of the CTG, seven were negative in that potentially expensive therapies that were of no benefit could be stopped, and two actually demonstrated harm. Uh, so the latest trendy approach to glucose management, for example, actually killed patients and caused harm in our studies. Uh, so. I think that the contribution has been very positive, if only that we're saving money and preventing harm and saving resources. The response to SAFE was very, very interesting. SAFE came about after a cochlear meta-analysis in the UK in 1998 that did a lot of things wrong in terms of how to do a sensible systematic review pulled many, many disparate studies, some very old studies, different populations from neonates through the Burns patients, some of very, very small numbers, with the ultimate conclusion there was a 6% excess mortality from albumin. This led to fewer worldwide big headlines, albumin killer fluid, albumin use dropped off dramatically. And there was a window of opportunity in Australia for, for the safe investigators uh, particularly by Simon Finfridge on my do, you know, the Belomo, to, to get this work together at the time. Um, so SAFE achieved its primary endpoint, which was to address the question, does albumin kill people? Um, it was designed around a 3% mortality as being clinically significant, and certainly the ultimate mortality difference was 0%. Uh, there's no difference between albumin and saline in terms of the planned primary outcome. How you then choose to interpret it is interesting, and, and people have taken it one of two ways. In fact, the newspaper headlines when, when SAFE was first announced took it in one of two ways. Uh, Sydney Morning Herald pointed out that, that saline was cheap and was just as good. The Australian pointed out that Alvin was safe, so go for your life. And they're really the two ways people have, have followed it. On the one hand, albumin is physiological at safe, so let's use it. On the other hand, albumin is of no benefit, uh, very, very expensive, saline is cheap, why use it? We've got the funny situation in Australia where albumin is free to us, though elsewhere in the world that's not the case, and it's actually a very, very big business. And, and the money is something that has really, really skew a lot of this argument about fluids because there's such big money involved in both the plasma products and also the synthetic colloids. So from the perspective, say, of a friend of mine who runs a major ICU in, in Mumbai, in India, he, he has to go to the families because the families pay for everything. Question, I've got two fluids. One costs about $100 a litre, one costs about a dollar a litre. As far as we can tell, they're equivalent. Which one do you want? And when you phrase it that way, the, the question is really, really, really quite obvious. Uh, following on from SAFE, uh, our trials group has been looking longitudinally at actual fluid resuscitation practices. Uh, there was firstly the SAFE TRIPS audit um, 
which was finally published in 2010, they conducted some years earlier, over many, many ICUs, 391 ICUs around the world, which showed that use of, or choice of different fluids was almost random. Uh, Saline was the most commonly used. The second most commonly used was, was Volivin. That's a particular brand name for a newer hydroxyethyl starch. And then other fluids were sort of lower down the list after that, but with really quite dramatic regional variations. A group has then done a series of point prevalence studies, um, just looking on single study days, what fluids are you using for, for resuscitation? And, and it's interesting just seeing how, how things have sort of slowly evolved year by year by year um, as those data have come out. And then in the last couple of years, we've again been fortunate in Australia to, to have a window of opportunity to study something where the hydroxyethyl starches have been used very, very heavily in the last 20 years elsewhere in the world, but have not been on the market in Australia until 2007 when, when Volivium was first marketed. So again, that, that was a, a window to, to study something before it came into practice. It was marketed aggressively. Uh, it was taken up with alacrity, especially by anaesthetists who loved having this new wonderful fluid in the operating theatre. But as, as I'm sure everyone listening to this knows, when CHEST was, was completed last year and published, not only was there no benefit at the primary point of, of mortality, but in fact there was very clear harm in terms of kidney dysfunction and need for renal replacement. So, so here we've again, got an expensive colloid that's been marketed very, very heavily, which has no evidence of benefit in any of the domains or any of the secondary endpoints looked at, but very, very clear harm in terms of damage to the kidneys. And I think it's fair to say now, um, this was in the most recent Cochrane analysis, um, that colloids and especially hydroxyethyl starch should not be used full stop. And that's now been stated pretty clearly. Uh, that might be a provocative thing by the Cochrane group, but it's certainly there in writing. And something we all need to think about is that while we can read the literature, lawyers can as well. And I think we're in the situation now in 2013 that if we give a synthetic colloid, and especially a starch, a patient has anaphylaxis and has a bad outcome, I don't think there's any defence. Uh, and we're going to get jumped on for that. So again, to come back to your question, what fluid should we, we be using? What we know at the moment is that the best fluid is probably study fluid. Um, it's a bit of a glib answer but I, I can't see any strong evidence to, to favour any one fluid over any other fluid, except in particular niche groups. But for general critical care, use whatever fluid you think is appropriate. Um, a, a joking statement by Malcolm Fisher from North Shore some years ago, um, this was meant as a joke, but it's got a, a large ring of truth in it, it was basically, I don't care what you use, use their old dog piss, but just give the right amount. <laughs> and that's probably still almost the right answer, just get the amount right, and that's the hardest bit. But we're now looking at whether high chlor or low chlor dog piece is going to be a better solution. <laughs> you did mention there uh, there are some niche groups, and the SAFE study has led to a couple of subgroup analyses that were pre-planned that um, have uh, led to some discussion on this. Is there any evidence uh, in specific groups such as head injury and in uh, sepsis? So the, the 
pre-specified subgroups in, in SAFE were, were trauma, sepsis, ARDS. Um, when those analyses were done, there, there appeared to be harm in trauma. Uh, brain injury per se wasn't one of the pre-specified groups, except that brain injury was defined up front on the, the case report form. It was a somewhat generous definition of brain injury, which required an abnormal DCS due to trauma and a CT scan consistent with a head injury. So it's, a, it's a reasonably generous definition of a brain injury. But when, when this trauma cohort was looked at, the only patients who appeared to do badly were those who did have a tick in the head injury box. And that then led to the, to the post hoc safety BI study where all of the survivors with a head injury were, were, were followed and, and functional outcomes were measured. So it's not, not a survival, but a, a formal Glasgow Outcome Score extended evaluation. And there, in every functional group, there were worse outcomes in those who received albumin compared to those who received saline. So the conclusion there certainly is that albumin should not be used in head injury. By extrapolation, it's probably reasonable to say avoid albumin in, in neuro, avoid albumin in trauma, though the clear evidence is head injury. Because the overall study was neutral, if there's harm in one group, there's got to be a benefit in another group to balance that out. That wasn't significant statistically, but there's certainly a suggestion of benefit in sepsis. We've got some people who are very excited and who want to use albumin in sepsis because you've got, you've got to use something that's, that's good. Uh, I'm not convinced necessarily that, that it's beneficial there or, or not beneficial. And, and we're still waiting for the definitive albumin in severe sepsis trial. There's a few of those underway worldwide at the moment. Other cohorts, um, other niche groups are a little. I've already talked about the possible place of albumin in ARDS. That comes mainly from a couple of small studies from Greg Martin's group in Nashville that, that, that haven't really been, been followed up by, by people elsewhere. We've been taught traditionally to use albumin in um, patients with, with decompensated liver failure who are having paracentesis. Again, that's based on old and and somewhat dodgy evidence, and the, the main trial that's based on, in fact, if you look closely, it was a, a comparison of antibiotics with antibiotics plus fluids, and the antibiotics plus fluids group did better. That, that fluid happened to be an albumin. Uh, it's perhaps not, not the fairest trial designed to compare albumin to anything else. It was really a resuscitation versus no resuscitation study, but that's the, the currently quoted evidence base for, for albumin in, in those patients, there's nothing any better to, to discount that. The other really interesting group are some of the infectious diseases. Um, different fluids have been studied in Asia in dengue shock syndrome, for example, and in Africa in, in malaria. The, the first studies looking at albumin in severe malaria suggested benefit which was both scary because the only supply of albumin in sub-Saharan Africa was through, through this particular research group, 
uh, and if it truly was beneficial, there were major cost implications. But then everybody listening to this, I hope, is aware of the more recent FEAST trial by the same group comparing bolus fluid resuscitation to no resuscitation, just maintenance fluids in sick kids, at least half of whom had malaria. And there was no benefit to to the bolus resuscitation. And in fact, there was harm. There were worse outcomes in, in, in the boluses. And again, this raises really, really, really big questions about our whole resuscitation approach with fluids. It's easy to dismiss the results saying, well, that, that, that's, that's Africa, that's resource poor, there were no intensive care units, if they got pulmonary edema, they couldn't be ventilated. In any way, there's a sick black kid from malaria, so who cares? That, that's kind of being a bit mean, but some of the, some of the arguments have, have almost verged in that direction. Uh, that's disingenuous, these are still, still the same species, and, and this question really, really, really needs to be studied. At the ANZIC conference in Adelaide last October, the chief investigator of FEAST, Catherine Maitland, was one of the guest speakers, and I heard a few of her presentations to, to both the general and also to the paediatric groups. And I, I raised a question from, from the audience at the end of one of these, saying, well, surely the, the obvious next step is to do an Aussie FEAST to randomise sick kids in our emergency departments to bolus fluids or not. And everybody in the audience kind of looked at their feet and they, they kind of muttered, yes, 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 we kind of need to do that, but we're not going to, somebody else can do it. Because that, that sort of question is just too hard. It, it challenges our preconceptions so much. But th that is the sort of study that, that we, we as a group need to get on and do. Thank you very much for your uh, assistance shining some uh, brighter light on one of the dark arts areas of <laughs> intensive care. Thank you very much, Todd. If you enjoyed today's podcast, why not check out our websites, Critique and Crit Nurse. Our websites are leading providers of online critical care education and include podcasts, journal clubs, online presentations, modules and much, much more. You can also join our free blog to help you stay up to date. Our websites are found at www.crit-iq.com and www.crit-nurse.com You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter or visit us at the iTunes store. While you're there, check out our data interpretation and CT interpretation apps. Critique, making critical care education easier.